Hello and welcome to the Itihasa podcast on Indian history. My name is Vijay Rao. Over here on the Itihasa podcast, we aim to demystify and humanize Indian history. Every show, we will be discussing a different topic from the wide expanse of Indian history. We want to understand a little better how people of the past thought about what was happening in their lives. Think of it almost like a different case study from history every show. Hopefully, the listener finds this fun, informative, and even valuable for understanding modern India. Namaskara, vanakkam, swagatam, salam. Hello and welcome to the Itihasa podcast on Indian history. I am Vijay Rao and thank you for listening to this, our second episode. Our topic today is the Great Trigonometric Survey of India. It was begun in the year 1800 and its story would go on to consume over a century of research, discovery and lives. The tools used were the most sophisticated of the age, the findings were enormously significant and the toll was hard going. It remains one of the greatest scientific stories of all time. The achievements of the Great Trigonometric Survey of India are incredible, ranging from the mapping of the tallest mountains to the understanding of the very nature of our planet Earth. But at its heart, the project relied on well-known and age-old mathematical principles. Bring out your high school textbooks, because as the title of this episode suggests, there will be trigonometry involved. So who better than an engineer to unpack this story for us? I'm very pleased to have Uday Kumar on the show. Uday trained as a mechanical engineer and has worked in the private sector in the field of software applications in engineering. He has also extensively studied the work of the trigonometric survey and is very active in building awareness of this story among students and lay people alike. He will definitely throw some light on this very interesting topic. Uday, welcome to the show. Thanks, Vijay. I'm privileged to be here. Great. So Uday, uh, like I mentioned at the top, there is some science involved. So why don't we start with the question of the curvature of the Earth and why in the year 1800 this was a question? Well, okay. Um, so like um, all hot topics of the day, uh, from the 1600s on, when it was kind of understood the Earth is wrong and not flat as a lot of people thought it to be. So the, um, so the quest was to find out really what's the real shape of the Earth. Okay. Is it really round? Is it a sphere? Is it an oval? Is it a void? Is it, you know, the commonly um, understood uh, told story these days, flat at the poles, bulging at the equator. Right. So, questions like these always popped up, and the scientist of the day was the one who cracked it. Right. And uh, I understand that they needed to use trigonometry to do this. Right. So um, so the principles of um, detecting the curvature or uh, you know, measuring anything on the Earth was very straightforward. So if you're looking at a triangle on a flat surface, then it's a very old, well-known formula the three sides of a triangle are A, B, and C, and you know the angles, the interior angles are say capital A, capital B, and capital C. Mm-hmm. The formula is A by sine A equal to B by sine B equal to C by sine C. And if you know any two of them or any you know, any three of them, then you can calculate the the rest. So this is um, this is this is true for planes, mm-hmm. such as in a paper. Not so true on a curved surface. Right. Okay. So you need to modify this a little bit for the curved surface, where the triangle is really a spherical triangle carved out on the Earth. And you know you use these principles to kind of accommodate for the curvature of the Earth, and and fundamentally to measure it, right? Fu- and fu- and once you got the distances, you got this like, the you know the cur- you could easily calculate the curvature of the Earth. You did this exercise on different places on the globe, and then you could easily determine what is the shape of the Earth. And if I understand correctly, by this time there had already been exercises within Europe in the northern hemisphere taking place. Absolutely. to measure this. Absolutely. So there were ex- there was an exercise there were exercises underway from the 1600s ever since um, you know, the Spanish the Portuguese set out. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there were exercises in Northern Europe. There was an exercise underway in uh, Latin America, South America, and as and when you know the British and the French and, and they they explored new territory like India, like Australia, they continued the exercise. Great. So then let us let's bring it to India then. So before the, this project starts in India, can you just give us a little bit of the colonial context that we're talking about? Right. Um, so the British had arrived in India and they'd established a fair, fairly good foothold in uh, the Bengal region. And then, you know, the southern India, 
they had they dominate they dominated southern india on madras and on the malabar coast but there was tipu sitting in between you know, in the mysore kingdom and in order to win or to dominate over south india they had to defeat tipu mm-hmm. and if they had to if they defeated tipu they had coast to coast dominance okay and all of southern india peninsular india would be over british um, control right yep. so as they were continuing to conquer more territories in india the understanding was that they started sending out scientists and surveyors for multiple purposes uh, among them the scientific study of things like the curvature of the earth and altitudes and longitudes and latitudes of the various positions of different sort of uh, geographic features on, on in india but also there is the context of revenue and military context as well right that's right so um, you know in order to conquer mm-hmm. you need to know the lay of the land because if you're a foreign if you're a foreigner and you're fighting a war against locals the right. locals inevitably know the you know the terrain very well mm-hmm. so and that was the case with tipu as well right you know, tipu was basically running um, circles around the british uh, because of his knowledge of the terrain right and uh, so for the british it was very important to learn two things one is to get an exact idea of southern india mm-hmm. one for the military expeditions two is you know what do you do once you conquer someone right okay you basically you want to get little money out of there yeah and the way you do that is by levying taxes right okay so for levying taxes you need to know exactly how much of lands over there what's grown there what are the minerals there and then you kind of are, you know put on a formula there saying if your land so many acres so many miles square miles you need to pay me so much money right great so that's the colonial context and we're going to leave that behind for now and we're going to focus purely on the scientific context going forward in the rest of this show but i just wanted to mention that there is a big colonial context to why the survey of india was created in the first place uh, which was uh, not necessarily about the sort of higher scientific ideals uh, but i want to get now into the story of the trigonometric map that was created in this whole process and we start with a gentleman who cared much more for the science than for the conquest this is a man named william lambton can you tell us a little bit about him yeah um so lambton was um, actually a surveyor he was a mathematician by education mm-hmm. and uh, you know he uh, li- just like the british was coming to india they were also going other places in the world and north america was a place they had gone and lambton actually was uh, in the usa or the america of those days and he was a surveyor right. so uh, you know the context in north america is a little different uh, not so much of fighting involved the huge expenses of land and you know once you occupy that um, once you once you win it over from the natives or whoever else uh, all you had to do was kind of distribute the uh, land amongst settlers so lambton's job at that point in time was to kind of identify huge chunks of lands hundreds of square miles and you know allocate it to settlers so he had a surveying background but he also had a very scientific bent of mind so what he one day while you know there was an eclipse on the way mm-hmm. so he you know just like we watch a solar eclipse today uh what we do is normally we kind of um, <clears throat> blacken the glass you know carbon or something and watch it he was trying to do that too but he forgot to blacken the glass so he burnt his eye wow. and uh, when he burned your eye and just like you know in um, Uh, in, in 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 these days if you are a military man and you know those days again military men were kind of they were he was a surveyor and he was also a soldier right so he couldn't fight in any battles anymore because he has he had lost eyesight and he was given the he was given the option <clears throat> uh, to move back to move over to a more civilian kind of role so he took a job for brackmaster there okay and uh, after a few years of that and the emperor found his expenses going you know haywire he asked for a lot of uh, cutting down on civilian people there and lambton was asked to go either retire or take up a fighting you know, uh, duty elsewhere right so he chose to come come out to india and fight as a soldier and um, you know as uh, was um, you know the key thing of those days so he ended up in uh, bangalore in the madras presidency waging a war against the tipu sultan along with the rest of the british soldiers at that time right so in by 1799 the british have de- defeated mysore and then 1800 uh, we find william lambton who's already had quite a long career in the north american colonies now here in india and he begins his survey with what's called a baseline in bangalore can you explain to us what's happening here right uh, so lambton establishes himself as um, as a very um, knowledgeable man with lord wellesley 
And uh, how he does that is that, you know, when they're trying to attack Tipu at Sriangpatna, mm -hmm. and they're doing it in the middle of the night, and on a moonless night, and there's the column that's headed towards um, Tipu. They, they are hoping to catch Tipu's soldiers unaware. And they know that Tipu's uh, soldiers are in a certain direction north, for example. And Lampton, with the surveying background, figures out that they're actually headed in the wrong way. Okay. Okay? Uh, just by looking at the stars. And that's common knowledge, but it wasn't very common for Lord Wellesley at that time. Mm -hmm. So he sends word and tells Wellesley that we're going in the wrong way. We're not going into Tipu. We're actually heading on, going in a different direction. And Wellesley doesn't believe him at that time. And after a while, gets suspicious and you know, has someone to kind of strike a match, cover it over a compass, see the direction they're really going. And they discover that they are going in the wrong direction. No and this makes a big impression. Mm -hmm. uh, and he thinks uh, Lampton's a genius. Mm -hmm. and, and Lampton has his own reasons again there. You know, he has a surveyor in the back of his mind. He's always wanting to do the, uh, you know, a survey in India because it's a huge expense of land. And if you want to determine the curvature of the earth precisely, mm -hmm. then you need a terrain, uh, you need a landmass as big as India. Right. Okay. So he makes a proposal to the, um, to the governor general okay. and says, look, um, so now that we, after the defeat, to put that is, that, uh, you know, here's an opportunity for us to do a very detailed um, survey of India, of southern peninsular India, actually calls it from Madras to Mangalore. Mm -hmm. And what this will help us is that <clears throat> it will get us a precise maps, lay of the land, understanding of the topography for, for military expeditions, for, uh, you know, levying uh, taxes, for everything else as well. And uh, the topography of the place is very very suited for this because we have hillocks, mm -hmm. we have drugs, right. you know, we have basically tall uh, Know, hills like Chamundi, Nandi, Samdurga, places like this, which are perfectly suited for something he calls as a trigonometrical survey. Right. He's, um, so, he, so that proposal is approved, and in 1800, he starts the exercise in Bangalore. Okay. And he, uh, he I guess, measures out what's called a baseline. So right. can you explain to us what that is, why, why that's important, and how he does this? Right. So um, a trigonometric survey, like I said, is basically a measurement of um, you know, a triangle. Mm -hmm. the sides and the angles of a triangle. So uh, in order to do that, you start your exercise at um, you know, in a place where you very precisely measure one length, one side of the triangle. And that's called the base. That's the reason that's why it's also called as a baseline. Okay. So you so And that activity was started in Bangalore. So between, a play, between uh, what he called as Kisnapuram or Krishnachpuram, present uh, Bangalore, mm -hmm. and Agaram, uh, which is you know, the blue firing range... Uh, Okay. Area, so he measured a distance of about seven point five four six miles. Okay, okay, and that's how precise he got. So this exercise took fifty seven days. Okay, okay, and he used um, a variety of equipment, chains to measure that. You know, these chains were basically you know, hundred foot length chains. So hundred foot at a time, they would kind of mark the locations on the ground and and cover the entire length of seven point five miles. Okay, and this I'm guessing required a high degree of precision, constant re measuring and re-measuring, kind of trying to ensure that you know the chains aren't expanding, so that the the, the measurement of the chain doesn't give you an error in the final measurement of the baseline. Am I right? Absolutely, it's a very very precise activity, which is why it took 57 days to cover a distance of seven and a half miles, which will take you probably a few hours to walk mm -hmm. uh, those days or today. The reason it took those that much time was. One is you had a hundred foot long chain, right? And you would hold it tight. You not hold it tight with, um, you know, just with uh, with your hands. You would rest them on wooden logs so that it's fully, you know, fully uh, supported, so that it doesn't sag at the middle. And then at the ends of the chain, you would kind of apply weights so that it's stretched taut. Okay. Okay. And these logs are actually leveled as well. Okay. So you put them on tripod stands and then you use spirit levels to level it out. Okay. okay, and once you have done this, and by the way, these are, these are steel chains, so they kind of expand with um, the temperature. So these uh, are also covered with um, a, a tent on top, a tarpaul uh, kind of tent, to keep the weather you know, kind of away from uh, you know, the constant temperature on the chains, so they don't expand or contract too much. And once you've done all of this, and you have leveled the chain, you stretched it taut and you know exactly everything's in line with wherever you want to start and end. So you use a, basically a telescope to align the lens of the chain in the direction, exact direction that you want to proceed. Then you drop 
know, a pointer there. And on the earth, you kind of put a mark stone mm -hmm. to, to know clearly where, you know, the uh, chain ends where. Then you kind of dismantle the whole thing, move 100 feet further again, do the whole exercise. So you do this exercise 100 feet at a time, cover a distance of seven and a half miles. Okay. And that's why it took 50, 57 days. Okay, so that's pretty remarkable. So now they have a straight line of about seven, little over seven and a half miles. And on uh, they use this as, again, they, say they use the word baseline, so let us also right. use that. So they use that as a baseline to now start calculating what become a series of triangles uh, through which they go, I guess, from Bangalore all the way to Madras. Right. Am I right? So now how are they constructing these triangles based on the baseline? Right. So the endpoints of the baseline are now very precisely marked. Correct. And now you know the exact length of the baseline as well. Okay. So what you do at that point is then you have the theodolite. It's another key device that we use in the, in the exercise. Right. A theodolite is basically a telescope uh, that's, that has the ability to kind of swivel horizontally and vertically. It's pivoted in that way. There's okay. graduated circles as well. So you place the theodolite at one end of the baseline. Okay. And then you point it at some convenient other point. So for example, if the baseline started at, let's say, Kisnapuram, uh, a point there, and and then you the the you know elevated location elsewhere. Let's say for example this is Savandurga. Okay. And Savandurga, by the way, is about uh, 35 kilometers today mm -hmm. as the crow flies between these points. Okay. You have someone on top of Savandurga mm -hmm. with a flagpole. Okay. Okay. Standing over there, so you 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 locate the theodolite at one end of the baseline, and then you point the telescope at the tip of Savandurga. Okay. So you sight the soldier there with the flagpole, and then you take the reading of the telescope. Okay. okay. Then you go to the other end of the baseline, you do the same. So what you did in the process now is you measured the angle, you measured a baseline, you measured the two interior angles of a location which is Savandurga. So now that you have three, uh, you know, you have a base line and two angles, you can measure the other, you can calculate the other two lengths. So from the two ends of the baseline, now you know precisely how far away the tip of Savandurga is. Okay. So you got three lengths. Okay. Okay. Then you go to Savandurga now, place your theodolite on top of Savandurga there, and look at another distant point. Mm -hmm. That distant point could be Nandi. Okay. Could be Banergata. Mm -hmm. Could be any of these other points. You take the you take the readings at that point from Savandurga, say for example to Banergata. Okay. Okay. And then at another point, which is say. Uh, Chamundi, for example. You got two readings. Then you go, you take the theodolite, light, move over to Banergata. Mm -hmm. Okay. From Banergata, you take again a reading to tip of, say, to a flag um, bearer, a flag mast at top of Chamundi or some other location. You get the angles. So this way, and remember now, you because of the first triangle, you know the distance between Banergata and Savandurga. And now, when you went to Banergata and you pointed at something else, you already knew one length, you get two angles. So you can kind of calculate the distance from Banergata to, say, Nandi, and from Nandi to Savandurga. So you're kind of calculating distances in a progressive ma manner in this way, one triangle at a time. Okay, so if I understand correctly, what this does is it allows you to make one very precise baseline measurement with a chain, but you don't need to keep replicating the chain again and again because you can... You measure the triangles, and using trigonometry, you can understand Absolutely. distances. Um, you mentioned something called a theodolite. Can you enlighten our listeners? What is a theodolite, and what is this piece of equipment that Lampton was using? So it's a very interesting device. And like I said, it's basically a telescope. And a telescope simply is uh, doing one thing. It's kind of uh, helping you look at distant ob objects. Right? Okay. okay. Now, um, so you mount a telescope on a wheel, actually on a vertical wheel and a horizontal wheel, so it kind of swivels in a horizontal and vertical direction, and you have a graduated uh, scale on those, so that you can you can you can actually record how much of the telescope is tilted either vertically or horizontally. Okay. Okay. And this is fundamentally a telescope, a theodolite. Okay. Okay. But what's so special about the theodolite they used mm -hmm. was this one was about six foot tall. Wow. Taller than a man. Mm -hmm. Okay. Telescope was thirty six inches long. Okay. It's three feet. Okay. It's mounted approximately about four feet high. And there was a chair uh, on which a person had to sit. So it's a big device. So you sit on a chair. You kind of people rotate it around so that you know you can look at wherever you want. The magnification of this telescope was about 65x. So an object which is 65 foot away would look like, you know, it's one foot away for you. Okay. The device itself weighed about a ton. Okay. Okay. So it's a one-ton device 
which you're going to take to places um, as high as Savandurga or Nandi or Chamundi or any of these places. Okay? And in order to do that, you can lift a one-ton device, obviously, by hands. You needed elephants, you needed carts, you needed horses. So, so many of these expeditions involved about 800 people at a time. Wow. Yep. Okay. So now the measuring starts in Bangalore. You, we discussed the peninsular measurement. He goes all the way to Madras and then all the way to Mangalore. And he goes, Lambton also takes the measurements down to Kanyakumari. So all the way at the southern tip of the Indian peninsula. So we have sort of the south of India pretty well mapped with these triangles running up and down and sort of across uh, the peninsula. And uh, what happens next? Lambton starts going north, right? Yes. So his, um, his, his first proposal is to do a survey from Mangalore to Madras, or Madras to Mangalore, right. a coast-to-coast -coast survey. And then he proposes you know, that we do a Kanyakumari to Kashmir. Okay. Okay. And um, so that's basically an exercise that will get him a very precise idea of the curvature of the Earth. Right. So basically, just to interrupt you here for a second, uh, he uses the sort of military necessity of mapping the newly conquered territories in the south to show that he can measure from Madras all the way to Mangalore across the peninsula, it sort of demonstrates the, uh, the, the feasibility and the, the, the use of this particular uh, measurement, and then suggests then why don't we take this all the way north to the sort of northern end of the mountains of northern India. And to basically, the reason he's proposing this is because he wants to add to the understanding of the curvature of the earth that we spoke about. Absolutely. So he has a very scientific kind of a, a desire, but his, he's couching it in the terms of, the, of, of the, sort of what the British colonial administration wants in order to get funding for things like a theodolite and the sort of seven, 800 people he needs, et cetera. Absolutely correct. So while he's sending out detailed maps of the, you know, of the, of the land to the British emperor, mm -hmm. he's also signed, publishing scientific papers at that time in right. reputed journals, basically kind of giving his exercise, details about his exercise and what he thinks the coverage of the earth is in different locations. Right. Now, one of the things that I understand is that, like we'd mentioned, that there were some measurements happening in Europe, in the Northern Hemisphere, some measurements happening in the Southern Hemisphere, in, in South America. This is the first large exercise in the tropics. Absolutely correct. And <clears throat> one of the things that comes out of this, this, uh, this whole project is that latitudes are of different lengths in different parts of the Earth, and that's part of the sort of explanation of the curvature of the Earth. Can you talk a little bit about that? That's right. So the word they use is, is called a degree of the arc. Okay. Okay. So if you imagine, you know, if you can think about the squashed apple, mm -hmm. flat at the poles, bulging at the equator. Right. Okay. And if you imagine an arc going from the equator to the uh, poles. Right. Okay. Uh, which means that if you're measuring the curvature of an arc, at the equator, it's going to be larger, bigger than the curvature as you measure it at the pole, right? So if, if you imagine an arc from the equator to the pole, and you can measure you can measure the length of the arc, you can calculate the curvature of the Earth. So you start off at the equator, and then you proceed one degree at a time. Then you know the curvature at each degree of the arc. Okay? And if you know the curvature at each degree of the Earth, you can actually kind of imagine what's the shape of the Earth or the curvature of the Earth itself is. So this is the big thing they're wanting to do. They say like, add, you know, add Mysore, add Bangalore, add Kanyakumari, at Nagpur, at Agra. A degree of the arc is measuring to be this distance. Right. Okay. And what that means is this is the radius of the, of the Earth at that point. Okay. And this is the 78th degree meridian that they're following yeah. north from Bangalore. Mm -hmm. And this take this is quite slow going because it's it's eight. He starts in 1800 and Lambton dies in 1823, just south of Nagpur, which is bang in the center of the country. Uh, so it's taken him 23 years just to triangulate about halfway up the spine of India. Correct. And that's called the Great Arc. Right. So um, so he dies in a place called Hingangat, close to Nagpur. Right. And he dies in 1823, like you said. Mm -hmm. And then he entrusts the project of mapping the Great Ignotic right. Survey to Everest. Mm -hmm. Before we move on, I just want to speak a little bit about Lambton because we talk about his scientific achievements, etc. But mm -hmm. one of the things that's very interesting is that in the process of this of this survey, he also sort of has an Indian family on the side as well, right? And they kind of follow him along and become employees of the survey 
along along with sort of the larger sort of baggage train that's going along, right? Right. So you need to remember one thing. You know, like I said, uh, this is a fairly physically laborious, time-consuming exercise. Correct. So a- every time they go and set up camp, mm-hmm. let's say let's say in Savandurga, okay, that's, they could be in Savandurga for quite a few months. Mm-hmm. Okay, the weather permitting, you know, the time to take to get there, and all of that. And during this time. And they are they aren't without their families. Right. Yeah, it's quite common or quite I think natural for some of these uh, people, Lampton mm-hmm. included. And Lampton never married, so it was Lampton on... never married. Right. We have affairs with local people. Okay. Okay. And this was not just Lampton; it was quite common among surveyors uh, okay. of the time, uh, because uh, Memsab would be away in the containment either in Bangalore or Pune or mm-hmm. Saint George or somewhere, and you know they they had a free uh, run at that time. Okay. Okay. So uh, Lampton. Rep- Apparently, did have such a you know, such an affair, mm-hmm. and um, there were two people who. Uh, there's one person who was actually supposed to have been an illegitimate child of his, mm-hmm. who subsequently actually makes it in as a surveyor general at a later point in time as an as an assistant to Everest. Okay, excellent. Okay. So and and these were these were acknowledged, like Lampton acknowledges them in his will and all of these things, right? So it's not that he was trying to hush it up or cover it up. Yes, uh, but uh, you know the it's just like. Uh, so the hierarchy is if you're a, if you are coming in from England, mm-hmm. so you are you are first in the hierarchy. Correct. Okay. If you are an um, Anglo-Indian, okay. okay, you're next in the hierarchy, and then you would be the native people there. So okay. that's the that's the way the surveying organization is also set up. And it's not just the survey; it's every kind of it's department kind. within Absolutely. the British government. Absolutely. Okay. Great. So let us talk about the man who takes over the survey in 1823. And that's a gentleman by the name of George Everest, and it's pronounced Everest. Am I right? So um, yes, uh, Everest is um, is actually an assistant of um, Lambton. Okay. He works along with Lambton for quite some time, uh, but there's a stark contrast between the two of them. Mm-hmm. Okay, Lambton's a perfectionist. Okay. Okay. He's obsessed with being, you know, perfect. So you know, believes in taking readings multiple times on multiple days. If he had a chance, uh, and because he was one-eyed, mm-hmm. he had to take readings with just one eye. Uh, but otherwise, he would probably take it with both eyes as well. Okay. So while Everest was a little bit more different, more flamboyant, and Lambton was absolutely a very sober, very ordinary man. You know, nothing, uh, not not much in terms of uh, no frills about no him. frills about him at all. But Everest is a kind of man who is very flamboyant. Okay, likes to kind of uh, promote himself. Okay, and likes to make a big. Um, Display of what he does, actually, just like you know, uh, Lambton did a baseline measurement in Bangalore. Subsequently, when Everest does a base, baseline measurement in Calcutta, he actually has pendals um, set up there. He has stands erected, so he invites people from all over the country to witness the measurement of a baseline. So this is the character of Everest, really. And uh, my understanding is that when Everest does the baseline in Calcutta, he does this huge, big public performance about it. And this is in part to kind of, because the British government at the time is based in Calcutta, this is in part to kind of get them on board with funding of this vast and kind of ambitious project, right? That's right. That's part of it. And it's also that his very nature is to kind of make a big display of all that he does. And uh, if I understand correctly, he gets into quite a lot of fights with a lot of different people as well, right? Yes. Uh, While Lambton believed in winning over and working with... um, you know, the other surveyors and uh, the natives, Everest tried to dominate over people there. Mm-hmm. So he believed in the usage of force, subversion, you know, scheming, and all of these things to kind of get on with the project. Okay. So now it's when Everest, when Everest takes over, the survey is, it sort of has hit all the way from the su- southern tip of the Indian Peninsula, has reached Nagpur, which is sort of a pretty a good approximation for dead center of the Indian subcontinent, That's right. uh, and Everest takes over. But in the when he does, he falls very ill, and he needs to kind of take a he takes a five year sick leave, if I'm That's not right. mistaken. Leaves in 1825, uh, and sort of a little bit after the Calcutta baseline, and then comes back after going to England only in 1830. And in England, he's been he's not he's quite busy in those five years in England. He's lobbying the the, uh, the the government. He's getting more equipment. He's trying to get more, more more money into the into the thing. And he then comes back to India, and uh, essentially uh, sets up camp in the north of India in Masuri. 
So while Lambton has been going south from Bangalore uh, up to the center of India, uh, Everest has an idea that he's going to set up shop on, around the 78th meridian in the north of India, in the mountains, and sort of survey south. That's right. Okay. So, um, so uh, you know, the Great Arc is where you're going from north to south. Mm -hmm. uh, but also remember this, though, that the uh, that was not the only direction the survey was proceeding as well. They were proceeding in the east-west directions too. So these were called secondary uh, triangulation uh, branches. Mm -hmm. So there was the Bombay branch, and there was the Calcutta branch, and there was the Vizag you know, uh, branch, and branches like that. So this is like a, it, what they called as a gridiron. Right. So that was how they were mapping the uh, another entire country. Mm -hmm. So the primary branches, the secondary branches, and you know between the, in a in a big triangle spanning off minor uh, survey expeditions to fill in the you know the spaces of the triangle. So uh, most of South India or most of the biggest bigger uh, you know, surveying pieces of South India were being done by Lambton. So Everest is then you know proceeding to the north, and that's also the play time and where British are basically you know exploring and conquering more of the north. Uh, so while they had Bengal, there was current day Uttar Pradesh and Madhya Pradesh and Kashmir and all these regions which were still not yet conquered and mapped as precisely. So Everest's uh, job was to set, was to go ahead and you know, map out the rest of the country. So he uh, at that point in time, Calcutta was the headquarters of Survey of India, and um, you know, the humid weather of Calcutta wasn't something that he liked very much. So he sets up base in there. Other. He okay. actually has a wonderful house built there mm -hmm. and moves the Survey of India headquarters to there. Okay, so he essentially moves the entire uh, headquarters of the survey to the north. And in, uh, in sort of 1832, he sets out from, from Dehradun. And I'm just going to read a small quote here from John Key, which is uh, from his book, The Great Ark, where he says, It was departed with two assistants, three sub-assistants, four elephants, 42 camels, 30 horses, and about 700 natives. Uh, and he was about to address what he considered the most difficult terrain ever to be triangulated. Uh, and this is difficult partly because it's purely flat land, right? So far, we've been dealing with right. places where there are mountains and ridges and stuff, so you can go 30 kilometers away and have a line of sight to a flag that you can see. Right. But because now we're looking at the plains of central and northern India that we're, we're, we're mapping, Everest kind of develops a rather interesting innovation, am I right? That's right. Um, so in southern India, they had hills, right. the drugs as they call them. And where they did not have that, they also had the temple gopras. Mm -hmm. Okay. So they mounted the theodolite on top of a gopra. Okay. And they ruled their land, remember, those right. days. So the temples were some things that were accessible to them. Mm -hmm. In the north, unfortunately, it wasn't the case. It was mostly the plains. Mm -hmm. So in, in order to kind of be able to site um, something which is farther away, you had to go up. And Everest hit upon the idea of building towers, you know, basically bamboo scaffoldings, uh, you know, temporary structures, which kind of rose 70, 80, 100, 90 feet um, you know, from, from the line. And the theodolite was mounted on top of those towers. Okay, so they are now taking up a one-ton piece of equipment up, I don't know, quite 50, 60 feet of, of, on the towers. Yeah, right. But still not as, not, 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 it's nothing compared to trying to... to put it on top one, of a temple absolutely. or on top of a hill. Right? Absolutely. And he starts doing uh, surveying at nighttime as well, right? That's right. So, um, so, uh, so the kind of technology evolves, mm -hmm. and they believe um, you know they develop new techniques you know, okay. in terms of measurement of baselines as well. Okay. And uh, the optical uh, ways of measurement as well. Telescopes are improved as well. And the other thing they do is they start using blue lights. Okay. You know, as you go to the north, it's dusty plains. Mm -hmm. So you know, ability to work during daytime is very limited. Because it's not, you know, visibility is not so great, and the old-fashioned way of uh, sighting through, you know, a telescope, like they managed to do in South India, wasn't so feasible in the north. Okay. So they kind of switched to using lights. Uh, they use a blue light. Mm -hmm. It's a blue, a very bright light, and they switched to doing it during night times. Okay. So in that sense, um, they can now actually they're not so very much influenced by the weather. Mm -hmm. The light can is artificial, man-made can still be sighted in bad weather. So that's an improvisation of Everest. Okay, excellent. And so now from 1833, 1832 to about 1837, for the course of about five years, starting in Dehradun, he, uh, Everest follows, starts triangulating all the way back down through Delhi, through Agra, down to Nagpur, where Lambton's team had left off. And sort of by about 1837, uh, the sort of final sort of uh, uh, measurements 
of the arc are complete all the way from the mountains to the coast of southern India. The main branches of the survey were done. Right. There, were, there was a lot of uh, gaps in between which had to be done. Mm -hmm. uh, so the survey, ex the exercise itself continued for almost about 100 years after that, filling, right. filling in the spaces. But right. you're right. The great arc itself had been completed by then. And it takes them another four or five years just to calculate, do, do the tabulations and the calculations just to figure out the curvature on the 78th meridian in the tropics in India based on their measurements from Kanyakumari to Dehradun. Right. So while the uh, formula for three sides of a triangle is very simple, mm -hmm. the formula for us, the, so they had a very, developed very sophisticated formula. Mm -hmm. So these, um, you know, these included for, uh, you know, multiple observations. They factored for the curvature of the Earth. They factored for change in gravity. They factored for a lot of these things. So the formulae that kind of were used for calculating uh, distances uh, and uh, you know other things over there, there's latitude, altitude, and all of that. It took days of work. Um, what, just give us a ballpark. So, How many kind of variables are we looking at in an equation like this? Probably a few thousand. Wow. Yeah, because the page. If you look at the formula that they were using there, they had about a hundred thousand variables. That's amazing. And this is before the age of... Uh, Computers. Before the, well, I, I don't want to use that word because there are actually... Uh, pe there are people who are engaged and employed by the survey called computers. And we'll get to them in a little bit. But I just want to read something again from John Kay, who is quoting Everest. Uh, upon completion of the arc uh, from Dehradun to Nagpur, uh, and he says the discrepancy uh, was 6.395 inches. And Everest would, uh, was delighted, and he says, considering that the Sironj, which is near Nagpur, and Dehradun bases are separated by nearly 450 miles and 86 principal triangles, it is as gratifying a proof of the accuracy of the series as could be desired. That the discrepancy after 450 miles and measuring out 86 triangles, the discrepancy is only 6.395 inches. That's incredible. In, in the 1840s by this point. Absolutely. Um, so the so the numbers that they came up with, they're striking because they kind of match with almost what we have today. Now, of course, 1843, the we, we mentioned the Great Arc is over. This sort of this discrepancy, the, this six-inch discrepancy, is the only discrepancy measured. And Everest now steps down, and his and his deputy Andrew War takes over. Uh, and I, before we get into what happens next, uh, I just want to quickly jump into a couple of other things. So we were discussing the, this this process allows you to measure, measure the curvature of the Earth. It also allows you to kind of determine what latitude and what longitude you're standing at. But, and for the rest of this conversation, what's important for the rest of this conversation is it also allows you to measure what altitude from sea level you're standing at. Okay? And this, again, uh, sort of is where we are going next, because having done all of the, having measured all of the plains, the sort of survey moves into the mountains of the Himalayas. And there's been a, throughout this whole period, there's been a big question of, are the Himalayas the, the highest mountains in the world? Are the Andes in South America higher, et cetera, et cetera? So there's a lot of questions and controversy about how exactly how high are the Himalayas. And into this picture, uh, we have a gentleman by the name of Radhanath Sikdar, who's a Bengali, what at the time they called a computer. Uh, and he kind of is the one who's running a lot of these calculations of these thousand variable equations. Can you speak a little bit about this gentleman? Sure. Um, so I was saying, um, so they do the exercise of measurements on the field, and that's typically a few months. So mm -hmm. they take three to, three to four months to get all the readings that they want, mm -hmm. and then they go back to the cantonments, and then they use these uh, readings to calculate latitude, longitude, you know, the height above sea level, and distances, and all of that. So this is a very intense exercise, and remember those days they did not have computers like we do today. So people had to actually sit down and manually, laboriously calculate these. Uh, compute. You know, they compute. And interestingly, these people were actually called computers. That's incredible. Yeah. So Siktar is one of them. And in 1850, he is uh, kind of under the gu guidance of War, who is now the Surveyor General. He is calculating from some readings that have been done in the sort of in the Himalayas, and he comes up with a discovery. Right. So, um, so Sikda is actually a mathematical genius who later on, he actually heads the computer department of the time. He, um, so he, he has also worked under Everest for a while. Okay. So there's this one peak well, which he calculates to be an incredible 29,000 uh, uh, feet and six inches, okay. Okay. which is higher than the highest known peak at that time. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, so much so so much more higher that you know they don't believe this when they get the numbers uh, mm-hmm. first. So he redoes the calculation quite a few times to make sure that the number is absolutely right. And then you know the number he comes up with is twenty nine thousand feet. Mm-hmm. And the mathematician that he is, he thinks that it's pretty odd if you were to say that the height of this peak is twenty nine thousand. It's too rounded, looks too neat mm-hmm. for anyone to believe. So he adds two feet to that arbitrarily and then goes to his boss and says the height of the mountain is 29,002 feet. Mm-hmm. And I think this is the highest peak in the world now. Okay, that's incredible. And um, sort of the, my understanding is, and this is a thing that was Everest had followed throughout the survey, was anytime they had discovered some new height or something like that, they would use the local names for those specific peaks. But this particular peak doesn't have a local name. So Andrew Waugh goes ahead and names this this mountain after Everest. That's right. So the George Everest, who has been who was his predecessor in the survey, is now lends his name to the tallest mountain in the world, and everyone today mispronounces it as Everest. But there you go. So what we see here in 1856, uh, which we're getting close to the end of our story now, is the mapping of the entire peninsular India and the mapping of the tallest mountains in the world and sort of one of the heroes of our story being honored in this way. I think we've covered quite a lot of ground here. I would just like to ask you before we close, can you tell us a little bit about why this is relevant today and uh, what we should kind of, what we should take away from this entire exercise that took place in India? Okay, so, um, you know, very interestingly, Survey of India maps today still carry benchmarks GTS station marks on their maps even now. Okay. Okay. So this data is so accurate and it's so useful. Hmm. We haven't kind of forgotten about it. We still retain it in our maps. Okay. okay. And so what's the big deal about this um, whole activity? Mm-hmm. It's it's really for the first time that a map, an inch perfect map of India was developed. Okay. Okay. And uh, the other important part of this exercise is that this happened right here in our backyard. Mm-hmm. So this exercise actually started right here in Bangalore. Right. Artifacts from those days still exist here. Okay. Okay. So, you know, while we know a lot about, you know, the usual other kind of places, we know about the palaces, the forts, um, and places like that. This is one of the most important scientific endeavors of humankind, which helped, we kind of know what's the courage of the earth. Mm -hmm. And helped develop inch-perfect maps of India. This is right now here in our backyard. Artifacts exist, and it's 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 actually um I would say a fantastic project in accuracy, endurance, and persistence and perseverance. Right. So there's lots of takeaways from this project for us today. Mm-hmm. You just go to these sites in and around the city or anywhere in the country for that matter. Yeah, in Dehradun also specifically. In Dehradun, right? Absolutely. In Dehradun, you can actually see the the, the great theodolite that was that from 1800 up to 1856 was traversed the entire country. It's quite incredible. So, so Lambton's theodolite is still on display there. It's preserved. In fact, a lot of um, equipment from the survey of uh, GTS uh, days is there. They have a dedicated museum for um, you know, for GTS um, paintings, uh, instruments, and books. All okay. of that there. Yeah. That's incredible. That's incredible. So, so, final question for you, Uday. I understand that one of your passions is uh, to kind of go around and discover or rediscover some of the artifacts of the Great Trigonometric Survey, especially in and around Bangalore. Can you talk to us a little bit about that? Sure. Um, so, the survey itself is an extremely well-documented uh, exercise. All the readings from those days have meticulously been recorded, and, and those books are still available in libraries across the world. And even more interestingly, they're just all freely available on the internet. So uh, what I did was I took these records and kind of reverse engineered them to see what's um, what were the kind of artifacts they had left behind. And so they had kind of documented and said, in this place near Uyale Dine, we built a structure of this type, and this was the dimension, this was the material, and all of that. So I kind of reverse engineered those locations, went over and looked at what was there today. Okay. Very surprisingly, many of those structures still exist in Bangalore today. Okay. okay. So the place I referred to called Uyale Dine, it's a very popular place. It's in Ramanamarshi Park. There's a Kimpegara Tower over there. So folks you know who have been there all know there's a Kimpegara Tower. 
just adjacent to that, there's a there's, there's actually a mark there. There's a mark stone left over from the 1800s by Lambton, by Everest, and a whole lot of other people since you know, in various ways there. And you can go and have a look at that today. So you know these kind of um, structures exist even today. Vialadine was an example that I gave. There's one in Rachenerli. There's one in Gedlerli. There's one in a place called Basanguda. And these are all markers in, in the ground or on top of structures to mark specific sort of points that the triangulation was sort of using to mark the, the sides of the triangles. Is that right? That's or? right. So some of them are actually markers that were uh, vertices of these triangles. So for example, on, the, on, on, on um, Savandurga, there's a mound which I think is actually from Lambton's days there. Oh, wow. Okay. And um, in and around Bangalore, the city itself, there's quite a few of them. Um, so there's some... Um, most of these marks were on hillocks. Some of them have been quarried out for granite. Bangalore is very popular for granite. Correct. Many of them actually had the look and feel of a temple. <laughs> okay. So because they look like a temple, most of the hillock, the stones being hollowed out, but there's still one long, tall column of stone there, a few hundred feet tall, on top of which is one old temple ruin-like structure. It's been retained because it looks like a temple. People mistake it to be a booth bungla. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we, we, we as a people don't destroy, we don't go near places um, kind of supposed to be booth bunglas. So, uh, so. This, is the, this is a situation mm -hmm. of a scientific artifact being preserved through superstition. Absolutely. Uh, and, you know, whether it was intentional or otherwise, it kind of stays around here today to this day, thanks to that uh, kind of look and feel to it. So, yes, there are mark stones uh, with a cross mark on the stone. Some of them look like temples, gopurams. So on top of the Gopram would be a, you know, a mark stone. So there's one which is off Henno Road, which is very interesting, which is actually one end of a Bangalore baseline. The second baseline was measured in Bangalore a little bit later, around 1865. Both ends of the baseline are preserved today. They're absolutely intact. The one that I mentioned at uh, Ramana Marshi Park, that one. The other one at the you know, close to Henno Road. This one not only has the mark stone, it also has the observatory, as they call it, it's a stone room, about 10 foot by 10 foot. Okay, on the roof of the uh, room, you find a mark stone. And in fact, it has a slit as well. Remember, you know, the way they calculated latitude, longitude also was based on astronomical observations. So there was a theodolite and there were also telescopes which were used to kind of look at stars from the various uh, places. So the observatory was actually an observatory in that sense. There was mm -hmm. a telescope inside. They looked up at the, the stars, the measured where it was rising, what, what was the elevation of the star, and all of that. So it was an observatory, and that exists even to this day. It's in a ruined state, and uh, it's a fascinating structure one must go and see. That's amazing. So where exactly is it for our listeners who are uh, intrepid enough to go find it? Okay, so this is on uh, this is a little off the outer ring road between Hebal and uh, Kyarpuram. Mm -hmm. So there's this road called Henno Road, which goes off from uh, an outer ring road. It's close to Manyata and goes towards Henor, about four, five kilometers on that, um, on, on a, a little off the school called Little Englewood School, right behind that, uh, this one's there. You need to be a little bit careful when you go there, though, because it's kind of um, um, weed-infested okay. and snake-infested. Right. So make sure you wear some shoes um, okay. when you go there. But it's a structure that one must absolutely see. If you are an engineer, this is like the Taj Mahal for you. That's incredible. Absolutely. So this is one of those places that help measure the height of Everest. And it's right here in it's Bangalore. It's right here in Bangalore City. That's amazing. I wonder if the school children from that school have any idea or the teachers for that matter. In, in fact, the villagers of the... Uh, the it's, it's a village. Mm -hmm. uh, right now it's within the you know, suburbs of Bangalore. Most people there don't know what that... Uh, that building uh, that is. That building is. Adjacent to that is actually a factory. So the first time around when I went there and I was looking around and I wanted to go and climb onto the roof of that um, room, mm -hmm. it's kind of dilapidated structure. You can't kind of just get on there. The stairs have fallen off. Uh, I, uh, an adjacent factory owner wanted to see what I was doing. He came over and asked me what this is about. And I explained to him the structure, the significance of that. And he was an engineer. Mm -hmm. So he, he, brought a, he brought a ladder over oh, and wow. we climbed onto the roof and we found the marks, uh, mark stone on top of the room. Both of us were exuberant. We could not believe what we found there lying from the 1800s. Still there, intact. Okay. That's so, amazing. So this man said, you know, I've been staying, I've been here for 20 years now. It's the first time ever I knew what this was. For a long time, I thought this was a booth bungalow. <laughs> a booth bungalow meaning a ghost house. A huh? ghost house. Okay. 
And I also want to inform our listeners that you've documented much of this in a fantastic presentation that yes. you have placed online, which includes the exact location of places like this one. We'll be linking to it in the description below. So if anyone out there is interested in tracing Uday's steps or learning more about Bangalore's connections with the Great Trigonometric Survey of India, just check out the link below. I mean, there's a lot of, there's a lot of technical detail, there's a lot of uh, kind of mathematics involved, but there's really also a lot of uh, personal uh, drive of individuals. There's a lot of really human story of, you know, uh, of these people with going up and down the country. And then there's a large toll also, lots of baggage men, lots of, lots of illnesses. Everest himself had to take a five-year break due to illness. Uh, so a lot of many people died along the way. Uh, but at the end of it all, as you said, they mapped the length and breadth of the country of India. They had a much greater understanding of the actual nature of the earth and the curvature of the earth uh, itself. And they had, by this point, calculated the highest mountain, uh, mountain range in the world, including, to a extremely accurate degree, the highest mountain in the world, named after the Surveyor General of India and one of the great leaders of the Great Trigonometric Survey of India, George Everest, uh, who lends his name to Mount Everest today. So that's the story of the Great Trigonometric Survey of India. Uday, I must really thank you for coming in. This was a very, very interesting discussion. A lot of the mathematics went over my head, of <laughs> course. But uh, it really was a pleasure. Thank you so much. Uh, and we really appreciate uh, you coming in today to discuss this. Thanks, Vijay. So that's the end of this episode of the Itihasa podcast. Thank you, as always, to the listeners of the show. Keep listening to us on soundcloud.com slash Itihasa podcast. You can also follow us on Twitter and Facebook at Itihasa podcast. And write to us at itihasapodcast at gmail.com. Itihasa Podcast is spelled I-T-I-H-A-S-A-P-O-D-C-A-S-T. The Itihasa Podcast is produced by Octavium Studios in Bangalore. Check us out at octavium.in. That's O-C-T-A-V-I-U-M dot I-N. My thanks as well to Pandit Prakash Sontake and the musicians at Octavium for the wonderful theme music to the show. Thanks for listening. My name is Vijay Rao and we'll be back with another episode soon. Take care.